Thanks, Lanray. It's such a novelty to see some real faces here instead of just staring at the camera. So it's so nice to see folks in here. I, it makes me look forward to the day. Can you look forward to it as well when this place is full again? Which is going to be quite a moment and we, when we're able to sing again as well. This is the final part of our Isaiah 61 series. At the start of the series, I read the whole chapter. I'm going to do exactly the same now as we wrap it up. So Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 11, goes like this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will... They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. What an amazing, astonishing, wonderful chapter in the Bible. I wonder, have you ever felt completely assured that God is going to do something specific? I wonder if you've had that privilege. I remember back in 2007, I was leading a church in Sussex, and um, I was strangely, surprisingly convinced that God was going to move us. And I was wrestling for months. Jackie and I were wrestling with this question. And uh, then one morning, as I was doing my normal reading of the Bible, I got to the part in the Gospels where Jesus walks on the water. It's a very famous story. Jesus is walking on the water. He comes by the boat. Peter says to him, if it's you, tell me to get out. And suddenly, strangely, with utter certainty, I knew that God was calling me, he was calling me out of that boat into another adventure that I had no idea about at the time. 
Well, Isaiah 61 ends with total assurance that God will do what he's promised, as we read in verse 11. Let's do a very rapid, quick recap of where we've got to in this chapter. We've seen who the anointed one is, Jesus, ultimately. We've seen why he came to bring good news to the poor. We've seen what that good news means for those who humbly receive him. We've seen something of the transformation that he brings. We've seen what his people would do in their rebuilding program. And we've seen what their inheritance, what their future would be like. And then by verse 10, as Sean helped us last week, by verse 10, we find Isaiah now picking up and rejoicing, not surprisingly, after all that he has prophetically heard the anointed one say. He says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And he gives two reasons for it. One in verse 10, one in verse 11. In verse 10, the reason he's rejoicing and delighting in God is because he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in this royal robe of righteousness that he now stands in. And then verse 11, the second reason is this, for or because he is absolutely confident that God will deliver on his promises. He says this, for as the soil makes the young plant come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so, just like that inevitably happens, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Isaiah's words are, they're like pregnant with hope and expectation. I had the the joy of the first grass cut of the year in my little garden. It's always a good moment, isn't it, Doug? When you get the mower out and uh, you can cut the grass and suddenly, I don't know what it is about cutting the grass, suddenly the whole place just looks tidy and ordered and the smell of fresh cut grass. And as I was cutting the grass, you notice not just the grass, but the Uh, the few beds that we've got and some blossom on the trees and some little buds coming. You you can just see the garden. It's like it's pregnant with hope and expectation that the bleak winter is about to burst into life in all sorts of ways. God's promises are certain. And Isaiah 61 is pregnant with hope, he says, just as the soil, like my soil at the minute, it's pregnant. It's bound to spring up. There's stuff in there, things that God has said prophetically in Isaiah 61 that will spring up because God is not a liar, is he? But Isaiah's words, you see, in chapter 61 here are addressed to a people who've lost hope. They've been exiled, taken away by the Babylonians, The land is in ruins. They have lost hope. But God works to deliver them. And God is in charge of all the nations. And though the Assyrians rose, then the Babylonians smashed them. And then the Babylonians are smashed by the Persians because God is using nations in his eternal purposes. And so he works to bring his people back from exile in Babylon, back to their promised land. And the seeds of hope do begin to grow. Some of these words that we read in Isaiah 61 do begin to spring up as they return and rebuild the town and the temple and the walls and they worship in their land again. If we think it's going to be good to worship together in here again in a few months, 
That, by the way, it's not a forecast, just a, just a vague hope. Maybe in a few months' time, maybe we'll be able to do that. Imagine what these people must have felt as they had been stripped of their land, actually physically taken away, locked away, and now they return. What a joyous moment. But they faltered. And of course, they didn't really fulfill what Isaiah 61 talks about because that was never the end game anyway. Because striding onto the scene a few hundred years later comes Jesus. And one Sabbath day, he turns up to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. He's been preaching around. He's become quite well known. There's this new guy on the block. He's teaching differently. And he turns up to Nazareth one day and he's handed the scroll. He's like the visiting speaker for the day and they hand him the scroll. It's Isaiah's scroll and it says he found the place or words to that effect. He found the place where Isaiah said this, the sovereign, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then after saying a few more bits, he sits down and everybody's eyes are on him because he said today, In your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. By which he doesn't just mean the bit that he's quoted, he means the whole glorious chapter 61. And Jesus starts his ministry and then he completes it with his death and his resurrection. And these amazing words of Isaiah 61 are being fulfilled. The seeds are sprouting. The garden, God's word, his people who've housed these words from the prophets, it's beginning to spring up. The young plant is growing. And the result, verse 11, is this, that righteousness and praise will now spring up before or in the presence of all nations. Firstly, righteousness. The sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. If you did a survey on the streets and said, What does mankind most need? You get a whole bunch of very valid answers. Food and water for some. Love is a basic human need. Maybe in our day, climate change solutions are some of our greatest needs. Meaning and purpose in life is a huge need. Maybe the need of a vaccine I had mine last week, feeling fine after 24 hours of feeling like I had the flu, as was anticipated. Glad to have had it done the first dose anyway. All of these and many more are legitimate needs that men and women have. I, uh, if there's anybody out there who's struggling with their school studies, let me give you a bit of hope. I flunked my, as they were in those days, GCEs first time round. GCSEs they would be now, I was hopeless. I I was really surprised. I was really confident, thought I'd got lots of exam, opened my envelope. I was absolutely useless. I took about 10 and got three. Anyway, I did some more uh, and was somehow allowed to do some A-levels. And one of them that I redid or took second time around was psychology O-level. There's a famous guy called Abraham Maslow, who in 1943 which wasn't when I did my O-levels, but in 1943, way before I did my O-levels, he wrote a theory of human motivation, which has become famous as a hierarchy of needs. You may have seen his famous triangle, hierarchy of needs. Somebody please nod at me. 
Yes, good, a few people have seen that. He said people have five basic levels of need. And the previous level has to be satisfied before there's a desire for the next level. The first is a physiological need, simply for food and water. Then there's a a need of safety, a need of social belonging, a need of esteem, of being worth something, and a need, ultimately, he said, of self-actualization, of finding what you're here for on this planet. There's a lot in what he said. But let me tell you, he's missing something. He's missing mankind's greatest need, the need of every man and woman that the servant Messiah says in verse 1, he has come to meet our ultimate poverty, a poverty of righteousness. That as we stand in ourselves before a holy God, we are condemned and guilty and lost with no way of finding ourselves a solution. Jesus has come for righteousness' sake, that he might make the unrighteous righteous, that God might declare to Lanray, declare to others, despite what you were like, despite what I still know you are like, I declare by faith in Jesus, you are righteous. Righteousness springing up among all nations. The New Testament says exactly that. Great statement, Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Those who will recognize their poverty before God, their lostness, their desperate need of righteousness will find it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the bringer of all the blessings in Isaiah 61 and he meets our greatest need. What a joy to know you are forgiven, isn't it? What an amazing thing that not by trying harder, not by trying to find enough positives to outweigh my negatives, but simply by the declaration of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all by grace, you are are righteous. It's utterly outrageous. And yet it is absolutely true. It's magnificent. And that's why Isaiah responds partially in his understanding at the time, but also prophetically, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me. See, he hasn't just taught me. He hasn't just given me a new way to live. He hasn't just given me some tips. He hasn't just given me some cheery bits to help me along my way. No, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. That is good news to the poor. But this righteousness that springs up before all nations not only creates a new status, it creates as well, Andy, could you get me that yellow book on that chair? I've been a dummy and left it there. (laughs) This righteousness that springs up not only creates a new status, it also creates 
for God's people as individuals and as a community a new experience of righteous living. Here's what it is to live among a people who God has made righteous. And it's different to what it used to be. It's different to what it otherwise would be. And it also, crucially, creates a new experience within those communities where the people of God live. It's righteousness as a status. It's righteous living as an experience. You see, back in verse 8, we read this. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And you've got to ask yourself, it's so good that God is like that. What will it be like to live among a people who follow a God like that? To live among a community of God's people who also love justice, who hate wrongdoing, who hate robbery, who hate lying, who flee from sin. That's got to be some kind of community to live in, isn't it? And it's also got to be some kind of effect on the wider community. That as you and I are scattered during the week among our communities, in our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, there's little bits of righteousness there. There's righteousness in your workplace. There's righteousness in your workplace. There's righteousness in your workplace. There's righteousness in your street. There's righteous living going on in your family because you're there. A righteous status that produces righteous living that affects the community of God, but wider affects those all around us. You see, what we've repeatedly said throughout this series is this. What God does for and in his people, he then plans to do through his people. Let me read you this. One pastor visited Kibera, an extremely poor area of Nairobi in Kenya. He walked into it by following a stream of open sewage that flowed right by shelters made of pieces of wood and dried mud. He saw many children playing in the mud right by the sewage with no clothes on. He went by a 12-year-old girl who his guide said was a prostitute. As he was feeling overwhelmed, he heard the first sounds of his destination. As the noise grew in volume, he recognized it as human voices. Finally, he came to a building, little more than a shack, and inside there was a church service. About 70 people were singing at the top of their lungs, praising God in Swahili, arms raised in worship. Tears, smiles, prayer, praise, he says. What could have possibly given people living in that darkness such hope and even joy? And he wrote, in that impoverished slum, I knew that the kingdom had come. Not yet in all the fullness of God's future promise, but it was there in the midst of the most horrific suffering and brokenness I've ever seen. He saw that the transforming power was both individual and corporate. God's reign was breaking in and transforming the lives of real people. These people had nothing, yet they knew that in Christ they had everything. And yet... The people were not simply achieving a tranquil inner psychological state because God's love was poured out on them 
and it flowed outward through them. They were not content to leave their community in its disempowered, miserable state. And throughout the day, I heard stories of how these people loved and served others in the community. What God does in us, he plans to do through us. The righteous status he confers on us is meant to affect our community living and also what it is like to be among God's people. How do we bless our communities? We take his blessing. We live his blessing. We delight in his blessing. And if we can live delighting in God, in all his salvation for us, in the righteousness he's arrayed us in, then we will surely be light shining in darkness so that others may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. No wonder then, no wonder then that he will also make praise spring up The Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's amazing what you can notice when you get rid of some of the clutter of life. We all know, don't we, that if you can find a spot, uh, even in the UK, where there's less light pollution, it's a remarkable vision of the stars that you see. We did that once on the way home in Sussex years ago. We stopped at a very remote spot, clear night sky, looked up at the sky. I'd never seen so many stars. It was remarkable. If you've never done that, do it soon. Find a space. Go somewhere. Well, when you're allowed out the area, that is. Uh, Find a space and have a look up at the night sky. And one of the things people say they've heard more of since lockdown is birdsong. Have you noticed that? People say they've heard more of birdsong. Well, do you know what it's not? It's not that the birds have got louder. Apparently, the birds have actually got quieter. It's that there's less clutter. There's less noise pollution. Fewer cars, fewer planes. The air is cleaner. And the birds have started singing. And even their song has changed a bit, people, scientists say. There was one bird last spring, a goldfinch, who sat in my tree to the right, or just in another garden, actually, to the right. I'd never noticed a greenfinch, a goldfinch before. Have you ever noticed a goldfinch? It's got the most amazing tune. You're looking at me like I'm nuts. (laughs) It was just remarkable. I was sitting there, day after day, this goldfinch is chirping away with the most amazing... I'd never noticed it. Get rid of some clutter. It's amazing what you can see. It's amazing what you can hear. And here's the intended sound. If God's righteous people can remove a bit of clutter, here's, here's how life should sound. Here's how the community, the community should sound. It should sound like this. Praise. It should just sound like God's being praised. We're singing. We're living in such a way that is praising his name, both directly and indirectly. Directly, like this morning, like we'll do when we can sing again, when we tell one another, when we tell the principalities and powers, when we tell anyone who's listening, God is amazing. And we want to say, have you never read Isaiah 61 and all that our amazing God is? And indirectly praising him too by living lives that simply show there is no one greater than God. There is no one worth having at the center of life more than him. 
there were a number of years ago, uh, there, was a, a, there was the rise of, of something called the new atheism. And at the core of it, the center of it, a very militant set of guys arguing for the, uh, the case for atheism and the horror of religion. Uh, at the center of it were four men who were called the four horsemen of new atheism. And one of them was a guy called Christopher Hitchens, who sadly is now dead. And he wrote a book that very starkly had the title, God is not great. And let's be honest, before I say anything else, let's be honest, lots has been done in the name of God that is utterly abhorrent. And here's some of his experiences. It's hard to disagree with to some point. One thing he said was this, or someone said about him, Hitchens argues that the concept of, am, the concept of a mighty God has profoundly damaged humanity. And proposes, he proposes that the world would be a great deal better off without him. Now, I don't want to put Christopher Hitchens down, but I do want to give you a rival quote. I read this, I don't even know where, a while ago, jotted it down. God is beautiful. And not many people know that. Isn't that true? God is beautiful. And the tragedy is that not many people know that. How will they discover righteousness? How will they discover praise, that God is ultimately worthy of our praise, that he is beautiful? How will they find that? They will find it in Jesus Christ, of course. But they will find it displayed before all nations among God's people. And therein is our challenge Therein is the task God has given to his people to make him known in all the earth, to go everywhere and to say, God is beautiful. Not many people know that, but I want to make sure you do. I'm desperate that you will know this almighty, magnificent God of Isaiah chapter 61. He is amazing. Could we just have the band back up, please? We're going to sing in a moment. But I want to make sure before we finish this series that I've given you, asked you one final question and I've set you one final challenge. The question is this, have you said yes to Jesus yet? Have you said, I need righteousness to be right with God? I recognize my failures. I'm humble enough to see it. I need Jesus at the center yet. And if you have said yes to Jesus, is he staying at the center? Is delight in God, rejoicing in his righteousness, he's conferred upon you and his praise that you keep speaking. Is that at the center of your life? Let's keep it there, folks. Let's be a people and a church who are constantly always keeping him at the center and praising him. If you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, now is your moment. Now is your moment. To just say to him, God, I need you. Please forgive me. Put me right with you. Give me that robe of rightness, righteousness that I need. And he'll hear you right now. And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. I was a school teacher for four years. Uh, this is the fourth of my four years teaching in a slightly nicer school than the first three years. I was a school teacher for four years. <clears throat> every now and again, this wasn't always the case, but every now and again, 
I'd have a parents' evening appointment with the parents of a troublesome child. If you're a teacher, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And sometimes it was like, oh, okay, I get it. I could see the child in their parents. Like, oh, that, <laughs> I'm not surprised we're struggling here. Not always. That's not meant to be a blanket statement. Just sometimes. Here's God's plan. God's plan is that when people have an appointment with his children, they see the Father and see something beautiful. Not that we're living perfections. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. But that they see something in the people of God of righteousness and of praise that God is. Look what it, lo- look what it looks like to have God at the center of your life and cause them to long after him and the forgiveness that only he can offer. I wonder if you would just stand with me as we pray. Why don't you, whether you're at home or on site here, why, why don't you commit yourself to saying, Lord, I need your spirit so that when people have an appointment with me, my neighborhood, my family, my workplace, wherever it is, they might see something. I might provoke them to see something of your righteousness and the fact that you are alone praiseworthy. Why don't you pray that right now? Come Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need of your empowering. Lord, we say that through us, those watching online, those here, may righteousness and praise spring up because of the anointed one and his work in us wherever we go. We pray it this week, Lord. Give us conversations. Give us boldness. Give us courage. May we make you known and bless others as you have blessed us. We pray it in Jesus' name for his glory and for the good of those we come across. In your name. Amen.